You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. I am feeling a bit nostalgic, and uh, my sermon reflects a little UBC nostalgia. So I'm going to preach old school UBC style by sitting on a bench, or on a, on a stool, on a bench. Welcome. Good morning. I usually begin my sermons by welcoming those who may be here for the first time with the litany of things that I believe to be true about this church. Things like how you won't be ostracized or patronized for your questions and doubts about God that you bring here and about how we as a, uh, we as a community, we are a community that says yes to God's inclusion and affirmation of all people, regardless of race, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, marital status, physical or mental ability or nationality, and about how we value kindness and mercy and justice, and how whatever you have to give to this moment is neither too much nor too little, but how God sees that as a gift, whether you're here or joining us online. But since I just snuck all that in under the guise of I'm not going to do that, Let me say for those of you for whom this is your 10th, our 50th, our 150th, our 500th time here at UBC, welcome. As you know, are are in the process of learning, all the items in that litany of things that I usually say are true, but they they are also challenging to live into. They are easy to put out there as aspirational values and marketing pitches, but once we come together and start trying to share life with each other, that's where the proverbial rubber meets the proverbial road, and we discover whether we really believe those things. If that is you, let me say this as either a promise or a warning, however you choose to receive it. It is possible that if you continue to stick around and engage in this struggle long enough, that you may, like me, either accidentally or intentionally grow old here. And to you, I say again, welcome. I'd like to briefly talk through church history, both big C church history and the history of this church. When the Holy Spirit fell on the followers of Jesus who, were, who had lingered around Jerusalem after his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, they all became the church. As they went back to their homes from Jerusalem, some of their homes were in Jerusalem. For a while, they continued to worship in the synagogues on Saturdays, but they also met together in homes on Sundays because this was the day of the resurrection. They met then to pray and to share a meal together and to read from scriptures. And eventually, over time, those Sunday gatherings uh, began to take precedence over their Saturday worship in the synagogue until they were basically Sunday kind of people. They had a common purse, meaning they shared everything and took care of each other. As their love for each other and commitment to the way of Jesus grew, The Bible says in Acts 2 that the Lord added to their number daily. We hear this, and we know how big this thing would become, and um, 
we kind of make assumptions about what, it's, what, what it means, about adding to the number daily. But it's hard to overstate this fact that for many years, when we talk about the church, we are talking about a very small and insignificant group of people who lived and were visible as individuals within society at large, but together as a group, as a church, existed mostly on the margins, known but largely out of public view. For several years after I moved to Waco, um, I think Betsy and Mark and Laura and some of um, Dr. Fluid and others will, will resonate with this. Uh, in my jobs and out and about town, I would occasionally see people at the bookstore or the grocery store who carried themselves in a certain way, quiet, peaceful, and the whispers would follow them. And my curiosity would get the best of me, so I would ask people that I knew who had lived here much longer, uh, uh, I would ask them who those people were. And they told me, oh, those, were some of the, those are some of the remaining Branch Davidians. That guy got kicked out by David Koresh a few years before the incident. That lady left a few days before the fire began. This one was just a kid when it all happened. In those years, the Davidian compound was still open, and though there would eventually be some power struggles over factions within the group that would close them down to the public, at that time, it was still home to a handful of followers who continued to worship in a new small chapel and would introduce themselves and tell their stories to any of the gawkers that would come by. But mostly, they lived peaceful, quiet lives, practicing their faith, however odd it may have seemed to the rest of us, together. This is what I think of when I imagine those early churches in, the, in those first few years after Pentecost. As their numbers, back to the original church, as their numbers grew and spread out from the Middle East, uh, spread, out, spread out from the Middle East to Europe and North Africa, the scope of their concerns expanded. One thing they had to begin to think about was their relationship to the society at large around them, particularly the Roman Empire. When they were a small group of people following the ways of Jesus, doing things like refusing to assimilate and participate in the rituals of empire, like pledging allegiance to Caesar, those things were minor inconveniences to the authorities. But the more they grew, the more problems they began to have. Eventually, rumors about their life together that may have seemed odd, seemed odd or amusing before, things like calling the bread that they ate the body of Christ and their wine his blood, are, are referring to each other as brothers and sisters. Those things turned into accusations of cannibalism and incest which turned into waves of persecution with varying degrees of violence, all designed to exercise control over this Jesus movement. Another set of concerns they had to tend to as they grew and as persecution came was figuring out how they conducted their common life together. What would their relationship to each other look like? How would they care for those among them who couldn't care for themselves? Who would manage the money? 
What should happen to those who weren't following the ways of Jesus the way they all agreed should be followed? What were they allowed to eat? How were they to respond to persecution? Who could speak to and for God? What documents and texts and people had what levels of authority? Who was in? Who was out? All very simple, easy questions to answer. I picked the two texts today from the New Testament, from the lectionary, to show just a couple of examples of how early churches were wrestling with these very complicated issues. The gospel passage from Matthew that was read, and I should note, even though the gospels uh, document stories of Jesus, they were written after Jesus had ascended, and the people who wrote them were choosing and curating the stories that they would include mostly to respond to these questions that were happening within the church. This passage is dealing with what to do if someone in the church sins against you. It gives a process. Go to that person by yourself. If they don't listen, bring more people with you. If they still don't listen, treat them as if they are an outsider. Now, I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you that this passage raises more questions for me than answers. What constitutes someone sinning against you? What if the one presumed to be in the wrong is actually in the right? And then there's the matter that the early church didn't have to deal with, but we in here in Waco, Texas do, which is what if we just keep kicking people out that we disagree with? They're just going to go to the other church down the road, and that leaves out any possibility for restoration. These are all the questions that got me in trouble in Sunday school when I was y'all's age. Regardless, this passage speaks to a reality that the early church was trying to figure out, which was this messiness of sharing life together. Oddly, the passage in Romans from Paul seems more gracious than the one in Matthew that came from Jesus. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and all the other commandments are summed summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no no wrong to, to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed, and it keeps going on. These passages wrestle with this struggle. How do we live life as a community of faith together, as believers seeking the way of Jesus? This church began in January of 1995 by a couple of Baylor students who realized that none of their friends at the world's largest Baptist university were attending church. They wanted to create a space for those who would never feel at home in any of the other churches in town. For the first Sunday, they rented a building that stood on 12th Street over by campus and expected a handful of people to show up. I don't remember the exact numbers. I wasn't there, but somewhere around a couple of hundred people showed up. The next week, 500. After that, it took off. They moved to the Hippodrome downtown, and then two or three years later into this building. 
I have more stories than I can count about life in this church. But one story from that first Sunday, which was five years before I arrived here, has stood out to me as one that captures both the spirit and the struggle of UBC. It's important to remember that the founders of this church were 19 and 20 years old at the beginning. Uh, Mimi, in a couple of years, you can start a church just like this. Some of you seniors, you're too old, so don't even think about it. They have admitted that they had big, spirit-sparked dreams for this place, but no actual clue what they were doing. Several of them got together before the first Sunday to think through the logistics of, uh, of doing church. They knew which one was going to preach, which one was going to sing, and that's the extent of what they had figured out. So they asked each other, okay, what do church services have? They thought of greeters, offering plates. I'm sure that process was far less awkward than it is now in our digi digital age. Um... I lost my place trying to land that joke. <laughs> slide projectors, they had that figured out. Uh, anyone remember slide projectors? Transparencies. The, uh, those of us who grew up in church kind of in the 80s and 90s saw the transition of that. And um, there was kind of a caste system in churches, and if you were the person who got to switch the slides, you were of like a different spiritual caste, one, one that I often aspired to, um, now filled by those um, pushing buttons up in the, in the sound booth. Lost my place again. <laughs> those sorts of things. Then they got to... Uh, someone kind of asked, uh, well, I know churches have these information cards where people fill out details about themselves and put it in the offering plate. So someone said, okay, we'll do that. So they created info cards and drove to Office Depot to have them printed on cardstock. First Sunday came and went and was, by all accounts, a joyful day, a success. They knew that something special was happening. That afternoon, after everyone had left, the leaders sat around in a makeshift, makeshift office, uh, office in that building to debrief the day. They talked about what went well, uh, things they could do better the next week, and how excited they were about what was going on here. And then one of them pointed to a stack of cards that had been filled out by basically every person in attendance that day and asked nonchalantly, what are we supposed to do with those? Everyone kind of looked at each other and shrugged their shoulders. Someone said, I think maybe we're supposed to put them in a file, file or something. Someone else replied, but we don't have a file ca filing cabinet. Then another person, someone who obviously grew up in an old school Baptist church, chimed in and said, I think maybe we're supposed to call everyone on, on those, in those cards and thank them for coming and invite them to come back the next week. Then everyone basically in succession looked at each other and said, I'm not calling them. You're, are you going to call them? I'm not calling them. And so it kind of caused this dilemma. And as the story goes, one of them gets up, grabs the stack of information cards, walks over, and throws them in the trash. That story 
tells stories about this place. And one of those stories is that we will not be compelled to do church the way other churches do church. Now, I will get to the critique of what happened there in a moment, but for now, I'd like to acknowledge the beauty of that story and how it has animated this church and was a preface to the spirit of lightness and playfulness that marks this place. All the people there were already in relationship with each other, so why codify that relationship on a piece of cardstock that's going to sit in a filing cabinet or on a computer somewhere? There are more important things like singing songs and throwing parties. The church grew. For the first five years, it was basically 99% college students. The only people not in college were the pastors and Frank, a guy who likes to say that he was the first member of UBC because he shopped here as a kid when it was a Safeway. But then students became grad students, and some of them stayed in town, and some of their friends from work started coming. And we began to wrestle with this idea of, are we a college church anymore or not? And how will we pay our bills? And what does it mean to have a Christian celebrity on staff? And a number of other concerns that I won't get into, there is a book in the Baylor and Waco libraries that tells some of those stories from a very biased and situationally informed person um, where you can find some of them. But mostly, whether some of us knew it or not, we were living in the tension of this unasked and mostly unanswered question. Are we a different kind of church that believes all the same things about Jesus and the uh, about Jesus as the other churches in town, but just wrap those beliefs up with a grungier? This was mid '90s. Our more emo in the early 2000s, our ironic in the later 2000 in the later aughts, I believe, is what we call them. Package in order to reach the lost, in order to this way of Jesus that is basically the same belief as every other um, church in town? Or do we believe something wholly different about Jesus and the Bible and the world and the human spirit and condition and what it means to be lost or found so much so that we can't help but be a different kind of church. For a long time, groups of people who held both of those views of this church coexisted alongside each other, held together by the sway and charms of gifted and charismatic people who occupied this space But once that was no longer the case, we were forced to confront this question. What kind of different kind of church are we? People came and went, sometimes came back. Some of us changed our minds about what we believed about that multiple times within a service. Or we decided it just didn't even matter. And eventually, I think the answer began to emerge. It is our core convictions about Jesus and the Bible and the world and the human spirit and condition 
and what it means to be lost and found that sets us apart. Jesus is the center of our faith, of our faith, not a heavily defined boundary that binds us in. The Bible contains sacred texts with holy stories meant to be a springboard into a wild life of faith and a compass toward justice, not a shackle that holds us in cells of conformity and history. The world and the human spirit and condition with all its colors and complexities and queerness are joyful creations of a loving God meant to be celebrated as such. And the ones who are lost, or the ones who are truly lost, are usually those who are most convinced they are found. All this other stuff around us, the art, the icons, the music, the mood, the playfulness, those are just natural results of those conclusions. Next week, this 27-year-old church will welcome the fourth person who has occupied a role that we have at various times called pastor, teaching pastor, and lead pastor. And all those varying stories, uh, all those varying titles tell stories about how we have wrestled with what it means to do life together. The first one was a dreamer who set things in motion. The second was charismatic, winsome, and whimsical, and left us far too soon. The third one held us together with his wit and intelligence and ability to make sacred texts come alive. I believe our pastor search committee has found someone to fill this space who has a little bit of all of those things and also brings a level of experience and wisdom that we desperately need right now. And I, like you, cannot wait for next week. It is an exciting and sacred time and one filled with questions and hopes. It also feels a little like we are limping to the finish line of a race. Or, for you fans of Cormac McCarthy, like the end of the novel, The Road, Professor Swanson, I thought you'd appreciate this one. When the boy without a name begins to travel with a new family that has also been carrying the fire into the deserted wasteland of some unnamed apocalypse, into a new world, embracing the mystery of what comes next. I'll close with this. I didn't write that, but that felt like a preacherly thing to say. I've heard this said about this church, both from within and without, for the past year and a half, and I've even probably said it myself a time or two. It is time for UBC to grow up. And I think that's true. And that means a lot of things, but mostly I think it means it's time for us to take that stack of cards out of the trash and recognize that the names written on them are beloved children of God, worthy of our attention, and there is something holy about the tedious and mundane work of managing our lives of faith together.
However, it's time for UBC to grow up is not a new declaration. We said it, uh, we said it in the meeting of some of us old people who were in our mid-20s in a room up there in, in 2004 when we were thinking about the future of this church. We said it in a contentious town hall meeting in the backside in 2007 after a series of consequential decisions about the life of this church were made unilaterally by a very small group of people. We said it in 2011 after the departure of one of those old college students from 95 who had the wild idea to start a new church in Waco, Texas, and we have said it in different ways and for different reasons many times since. Maybe it's time for us to grow up, maybe not. What if, though, instead, it's not time for us to grow up, but for us to be reborn? What might that look like? I'll close with a quote, so I wasn't closing before, um, but this really is, I'm at the end from Sarah Miles, who is a uh, priest in um, San Francisco, who uh, spent many years as a journalist uh, and as a community organizer, and walked into a church one day and had communion and had a mystical experience with God, and a few years later was a priest serving communion uh, to people on the streets of San Francisco. And she says this, in my roles as a journalist and organizer, I'd learn that it's possible to fall in love with a revolution, then doubt it, fight with it, lose faith in it, and return with a sense of humor and a harder, lasting love. I would have to learn the same thing about church when I was much older, and it would be no easier. We like to spend the moments at the end of this, uh, after the sermon, in silence to hear from God, to reflect on the words that were said, to give the Spirit time to speak something new or to correct something the preacher has said wrong. And so we will take that moment now. <laughs>